My chance to go watch Made in China. We play ping pong ball. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with Loran Laskai, a researcher at a prominent centrist American think tank. We also have joining us a guest host, uh, Athena Tao, a researcher and analyst based here in Beijing. Uh, so thanks, uh, thanks to you two for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to this today. So our topic today uh, are two totally interrelated um, streams. The first on Trump trade and uh, made in China 2025, and the second on uh, Chinese tech CEOs being forced to make apologies based on uh, uh, content issues. So um, with before we jump into those things, uh, Lorand, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about your China story and what got you interested in these sorts of issues. Yeah, so um, I I went to China first in um, 2011. I, I was I was a junior in college and somehow found myself uh, doing summer research in Beijing without any China experience and was completely overwhelmed and uh, um, completely unprepared. But I got a taste and I decided to come back. So after I graduated college, I spent a year. Studying Chinese in Taiwan, um, which is a terrific place to study Chinese. If anyone is interested in doing that, um, and then I uh, went over to the mainland. I did some uh, fun odd jobs, ran a debate league, and ended up at the Financial Times doing uh, research on China tech and tech policy and uh, sort of financey related stuff. So um, yeah, it's been a wild ride, and I've uh, and then um, yeah, and last year I uh, called it quits and came back to the states. So, can you tell us a little bit about the Chinese debate scene? Yeah, it's um, it's strangely, it's a very, uh, it's it's quite large. It's definitely flourishing. Um, it's one of those things you don't think would uh, succeed in China, but um, among a certain uh, group of students, many of which want to study abroad, like debate, actually turns out to be uh, one of their favorite activities. So, I think you have to check in with the the, the debate leagues to see how many people there are. But I mean, when I was doing it, we had like um, something like 30 or 40 tournaments a year with each with uh, two to 300 students. So um, it, it was quite large. In comparison, model United Nations did not take off. So um, there's an interesting data point. So so something I heard is that um, just the, the idea in the Chinese education system of kind of having to articulate your own arguments and push back and forth isn't necessarily something that um, is all that seen. And um, that being that ends up being an aspect of the um, of the kind of debate environment, which is obviously central and then um, really attracts a certain type of kid. Did, did you did you see that as as this being a kind of outlet uh, and, and really standing out relative to the rest of the um, uh, the educational system? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think, you know, I think all the the common uh, prognoses of a uh, of the Chinese education system are completely right. It's very test based. It's not particularly into uh, developing creative or creative, you know, thinking or critical thinking or anything like that. But I mean, there is, you know, China is a large place, and there's a lot of students that crave that, or they or they don't know they crave that, and then they try something like debate, and they they find out that they quite like it. And you know, a lot of those students might be like um, coming from liberal coastal cities where you know they have they have more of a western style upbringing but you know you'll you'll go to cities like Lanzhou or um you know uh Hefei and you'll find students that are you know you know they're 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 incredibly combative and they're you know they love debating and they you know make arguments that the party would very much approve but um you know they 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 find that they really like it so you know there's a lot of uh there's a lot of uh, debaters out there I mean, I, I think you got like, I mean, you, you definitely see like the urban rural divide, like you go to smaller cities and you will get a far more conservative bunch of students that will make, you know, pretty, pretty, I mean, by our standards, uh, wacky arguments about, you know, like, you know, like, for instance, and in, I mean, I remember once a student basically setting up their, their, so every time when you do debates, um, you have to set up a standard of evidence, like what, what is your threshold for meeting for something being correct or for you to win you'll like usually say like like i win this tournament if i uh you know pr prove that like most people will benefit from my policy um and i, I you know there were students who'd be like i will I, like i win this debate if like you know i if i like like put down arguments that most align with like you know the, the words of chairman mao and um 
So you'll get a lot of stuff like that. But I mean, I, yeah, I think there's definitely like ideological divide and it's sort of uh, the reverse of uh, what you expect in the United States. Right, right. I remember in high school, there's this uh, course called, if you translate it literally, it would mean thinking and, and consciousness. And basically to ace that course, all you have to do is to repeat what the party says. Um, so yeah, <laughs> on, on yeah. conservatism. Right. Um, so going a little closer to what we're really trying to talk about today, um, how was covering chi the Chinese tech scene um, being for you while you were at the Financial Times? And what was what were some of the biggest stories back then? So, I mean, I so full disclosure, I was I was a researcher at a part of the Financial Times that is not the News Bureau. So I was at Danway, um, which was previously independent. Um, research firm that was bought by the Financial Times, I think in, I want to say in 2012. Um, and so we, we sort of did long-term in-depth projects on various parts, uh, things that clients would be interested in. So I think one of the major things that was different for me than a typical journalist is that um, I could go in and say I was a business researcher and usually didn't, didn't uh, receive the same pushback as, you know, a journalist would receive. Um, but, you know, I think at the time, like the, the big story or the story that we, uh, that we, we were covering quite a bit was the, the, the first few years of the CAC, the cyber administration of China. I mean, I mean, everyone was sort of wondering what this entity is going to do and their, their, um, sort of charismatic, um, sort of trollish, uh, leader, um, Liu Wei was, uh, making waves. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there was a, at the time, it's the same as today, there was just a big question mark over what the government was going to do related to tech. And, um, you know, a lot, a lot of companies were quite, quite worried. And, and, and to add to that, I mean, the same, this was also around the time that the, the Chinese market had that summer, summer uh, stock market crash. So and, and the government was, uh, was sort of, was sort of a uh, arresting various financial moguls or or they were being disappeared. And there's a lot of fear and paranoia over what, like, you know, how the government was going to interact with private business. So when it comes to fear and paranoia, um, the, the recent apologia by the, uh, uh, CEO of bite Tance was certainly, you know, certainly had some of those, uh, aspects to them. Do you want to give us a bit of context as to, as to, as to what happened over the past two weeks? Maybe, um, uh, maybe introduce what, what bite Tance is. Yeah, so I think this is a this is a really interesting moment in Chinese tech. Um, so ByteDance is uh, perhaps one of the most interesting uh, new companies on the Chinese tech scene, and they are basically they're 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 basically a their biggest app is Junro Totia or Daily Headline. The direct translation is, um, and they're basically a large news service. Um, they provide a what is equivalent of the RSS feed for their users. Um, with a very strong machine learning backend that sort of caters what news and items you see to um, people's interest, um, and their 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 numbers are just astounding. They have you know something like seven hundred million users, like um, over a hundred million of those are um, uh, daily users or spend, and I think the average time they spend is something like seventy minutes a day. Like these are numbers that like Facebook would 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 love, or most social media companies would love. Um, and so ByteDance has been really good at making apps like that, um, that are, you know, that are incredibly interactive, have a social media element to them, and then are powered by these strong algorithms that really track what people want and give them what they want. Um, and I think my suspicion is that one of the reasons, like, like a lot of Chinese tech firms, one of the reasons that they're so successful is they're filling a niche that needs to be filled. And the simple fact is media in China is not super interesting. I would love to get your opinion on this too. Um, but you know, there's a lot of sort of, sort of communist jargon and state media um, dribble. That's not particularly appealing to the average reader. And what, what Junro Totia will do is it'll basically, it'll give you all the sort of most sensationalist, the interesting stuff you think it can find for you. Um, and if you click on it, it'll give you more and more of that. Um, so I think as a result, what we've seen is that the Chinese government has been a little uncomfortable with, with, uh, how the company has basically created a user base that, um, that, uh, you know, that is plugged into its media ecosystem. Um, so, I mean, fast forward to, to the last, last year, we were seeing 
um, regulators continuously coming after Jiro Totiao for for um, for the usual charges, sort of disseminating uh, vulgar and, and uh, erotic content, which is you know very much against the law. Um, and you see, we see seen repeated apologies from uh, ByteDance uh, employees saying, you know, we're going to do better. We're to, we're hiring more censors to make sure that none of the content that is getting to users is uh, uh, is uh, illegal. Um, and then, um, and I think, I think as, uh, I think, I, I think it was in January and I feel free to correct me if you, if you, if you know, if you know the actual date, um, in January, the, the, um, cyber administration of China just took down a few of, uh, of, uh, Junro Totiao's services for seven or eight days. Um, and this was very much like a warning, like we're serious, we're, um, you know, we, we want you guys to change. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's been this brewing conflict, uh, between, uh, uh, between regulators and, uh, ByteDance. And I mean, ByteDance is this huge company that's raised a ton of money and it's really like so many other Chinese tech companies come virtually out of nowhere. Um, and you know, they have large plans both domestically and abroad. They want to expand. They, they, I think they have a great product. Um, but as, as often the case when it comes to social media and the media ecosystem in China, the, 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 the fish officials are not really willing to cede authority to, on, on what people read. So um, that brings us to today's, uh, today's or this um, recent apology. Right. Um, if I may just add some details to, to um, the, the context, the background of this apology. Um, ByteDance, along with um, several other I, I guess you could call news sites or in general um, apps or information sites um, have been have received these um, what Loran called temporary um, bans from from the app store basically as you mentioned as as a warning to um, remind these companies that you have to, um, first and foremost, be under the party guidelines when you're publishing these contents. Um, but this time, it's it's very severe, and I th- I believe that triggered the the written apology. Um, th- this time, it's different because one arm of the ByteDance company, um, it's literally called um, Inside Jokes. The app itself is called. Um, I'm not sure if this is a, the, the most official translation, um, but the literal translation would be like an inside dark joke, um, kind of an app where people put up these, you may say vulgar, um, jokes they come up with themselves and video content. Um, this app got got shut down permanently. And um, from unofficial sources, um, this app is supposed to generate like, two to three billion RMB for the company this year. That's like their internal goal. Um, so this time it really hurt. Can you, can you actually tell us more about, um, uh, uh, about uh, internal jokes? Cause I think this is one of the apps that, that I did not get to, unfortunately get to partake in because I didn't, I didn't realize it existed when I was in China. Um, is, is it appropriate to say it's sort of like, it's like 4chan, but maybe like a little more mild? I've never used it, but it's got this stereotype that, um, so I think what the party really doesn't want to see happen is large amount, large flocks of people gathering on the internet on one app or, or, or another, um, to talk about a certain level of content. Um, by that, I really mean like, like these people talk about jokes that, say, educated first-tier or second-tier city people wouldn't want to talk about on the table. These are jokes that you would expect. It's hard to... These are jokes that are politically very incorrect, um, and you don't really want to talk about these jokes with your parents kind of content. Um, to me, to me it apps. sounds sort of like what you would see, I mean, as a Western sort of comparison sort of see what you would see on reddit there's sort of like an internal lingo and people like to you know there's a lot, lot of running jokes that sort of evolve over time and people feel like right. initiated you can, you can think they... of it as as the blue pill the yeah blue exactly pill. <laughs> um 
What's, yeah, what, what's that... interesting is that there were actually rumors around ByteDance buying Reddit, um, you know, six or ten months ago. So um, God knows what what would have happened to that. Had yeah. God knows what would have happened to Reddit had um uh, had that um deal gone through. There's um uh, there's there's another thing we'd be remiss in um uh, in uh, talking and not talking about ByteDance is the um uh, the giant new hit that this app has had with Douyin. Um, which has absolutely blown up over the past uh, three or four months. It's sort of like a like a musically plus Vine, um, and you know it's very clear that that content does not have this sort of dark edge to it. Um, it's a lot of more uh, first and second tier cities folks kind of making very lighthearted jokes, um, and uh, seems to be more of the type of thing that uh, would not necessarily get by dance in trouble um, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think one sort of broader theme here that's worth uh, fleshing out is that, you know, the Chinese government is incredibly pro-tech. You know, they're they have these they have insane sort of goals about becoming a cyber superpower, and they you know they they very much prioritize their tech sectors, and they, they you know they they've turned them very much into like a sort of national treasure treasure treasure. Like you can see in state media things about like the four great inventions of China and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, the Chinese government doesn't actually quite like tech that is sort of it's very social media driven. It's sort of exists, exists online. It generates value through user interaction. It doesn't quite like this stuff. It's sort of similar price. It's very, probably quite similar to why authorities don't really like Facebook or see any value in, in letting it into the country. They, they, these things aren't like washers or dryers or robots or you know, um, other industrial equipment that actually generate value. And at the end of the day, like the government is really interested in those types of things. They want, they want, um, things that are a, not political and B to, to generate something of value. Um, and I think as they see, um, the way that, uh, social media has shaped the world first by, um, you know, promoting democracy and giving activists a, a platform and then later by giving, you know, trolls and Russian, you know, Russian trolls and you know stuff like that a uh, way of sowing dissent they've they've really lo- sort of looked at at the social media companies with a lot of suspicion I think we're seeing that with ByteDance which you know is in some ways should be a, a one of the companies that the communist party is very proud of because it's a huge company with that's um has is going to have huge um international an in, huge international presence but instead we're seeing you know the exact opposite which is the Chinese government coming down quite hard on um, on uh, one of its biggest biggest companies. Right, exactly. So it's really important to understand that ByteDance is not a media or even a social media company. ByteDance has has made it clear since day one that it that it wants to be a big data company, and I think um, yeah. the executive Zhang Yiming mentions this in the letter as well that this is really a tech company. Um, and ByteDance really operates um, the same as the Google model. It really earns ad money. And it's been super successful because it's the company, the, the company that, that knows the best um, about its users. As soon as a user comes into any of the ByteDance products, the company tracks what phone you're using, um, what uh, courier you have, how much time you spend on a certain article and they pitch you these articles for you to read or, or, or videos and they actually record um, whether you've, whether they've hit, they've, they've hit the target, whether they got you right, whether they got you wrong. If you didn't read it, what are the potential reasons they could think of? Um, so this is really a company that, that um, analyze user behaviors and try to make ad, ad money out of that um, instead of a company that like Facebook wants the world to be a more connected space. I mean, I, so I, I will say that I think, I think Byte, ByteDance and Facebook's model are not all that different because they are both sort of generating ad content and they're engaging users um, to, they're engaging users to basically sell them content Um but I mean, I think I think like I, I would go actually a step further than you, and say that um, that ByteDance is not just a big data company; it's an AI company. And I think um, a lot of the the success sure. they've had is with deep learning algorithms that are so good at just like sucking right. up your data and telling you exactly what you want. Um, and I, th- I I mean. 
they made headlines sometime last fall for offering this insane package for AI scientists, like something like $3 million just starting out. And, you know, there's a ton of like small perks too that went along with that huge paycheck. Um, and that, that's more than any other company in the world has been offering uh, for, for just, just for AI scientists. Um, but I mean, I think the critical thing here is like, is like um, Facebook or a lot of other companies in this space, the, 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 the government doesn't really see how what this company is doing is of benefit to them. Um, I think it's easy for them to see Huawei and see like, you know, that Huawei is working on next gen technology. It's it's um, it's putting down fiber optic cables. It's doing all these things like these things are aligned with the party's goals. Um, but ByteDance, it's, you know, it doesn't really see that. I think I think employees are employees of ByteDance have been trying to sell the government on its technology there. Last fall, there was a uh, they. Um, there was a ByteDance executives met with uh, officials from the Cyber Administration of China and other regulatory bodies and basically tried to sell them on their anti-rumor filter, which is basically using um, machine learning as a uh, as a way of capturing or catching rumors and erasing them from the web. And, you know, evidently they were not impressed enough. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how this um, this sort of government uh, interference in these types of tech companies impacts their um, their their international expansion plans. Because um, you know these sorts of uh, uh, you know these sorts of of moves make um, would make would I imagine make um, American and European regulators much more um, wary if the Chinese government uh, does have does have so much power over a content provider. I mean, if you're worried about if you're worried about fake news from Russia on um, Facebook and Twitter, uh, imagine uh, what what type of concern you would have if it's you know a, a Chinese owned app um, and and there's some you know issue around the, the Taiwan question or um, uh, or or North Korea things that um, uh, things that the Chinese government really um, is spending a lot of uh, uh, time and money trying to trying to message like the the idea that they wouldn't also rely on their um, on uh, you know Beijing based uh, technology companies to to push that uh, seems pretty uh, seems pretty clear to me and something that I imagine uh, foreign uh, particularly uh, Western governments are going to be uh, definitely on the lookout for. Yeah, no, I, I think Jordan is completely right. I think one of the just a quickly one of the underreported stories and the ones one of the ones that I would love to know more about is. ByteDance's uh, international expansion because they've been incredibly active in markets like Latin America and have been buying up small outlets and trying to create a media ecosystem for these countries. Um, and that's something that other companies in China really haven't succeeded in when it comes to content pro providing. I know ba Baidu had tried to sort of puncture the Latin American markets and you know failed pretty miserably. So um, it'll be interesting to see how they do abroad because they do have large international ambitions. Right. I, I think any content platform, at the, at the end of the day, their competition mode would be the content that's already on the platform. So for any foreign company to um, really penetrate a, um, a new market, I think that would be really hard because you don't have content that, that's tailored to that market's appetite. Um, instead, I think ByteDance might want to do something like outsourcing um its ai abilities um because i think by dance is the only the the first company in china to really start its own ai lab and just the data points that it accumulated over the years is astonishing um and for them to um maybe help or or teach a different um, content platform abroad um, to analyze these data, I think that would just be huge and certainly something to be wary of if it's if it's sensitive content. Yeah, and I think as a point of comparison, like like, like looking at ByteDance, which is as we said is like an AI company with other Chinese AI companies like SenseTime or Face Plus Plus, which are you know they rather than a, rather than the business of content providing there and the business of scanning people's faces and identifying them or using object-based AI to to improve surveillance or to be able to create like a facial IDs for for as a form of uh, sort of you know for payment or other things um, these companies have been incredibly successful and you've seen the government being uh, relatively hands-off with their 
operations and in fact giving them support through various means. Um, I think I think I believe it was Face Plus Plus just um, just raised a ton of money and it was um, and a large backer is a some state backed fund. So you know we're seeing very different responses from the Chinese government depending on what exactly the AI company is doing with their with their technology. And with that, we're making an awkward transition to trade. So um, uh, I think I think before jumping into the current um, uh, the current back and forths that uh, that are going on between Trump and um, uh, Trump and Xi, it's important to give a bit of context to um, uh, you know to to what's been going on in Trump's mind because he's the real prime mover. Um, when it comes to the recent um, the recent tariff battles and the potentially incoming trade war, uh, so. Um, do you want to give a uh, b- before we jump into the presidency, or, or maybe we should start with the um, with the primary um, in the general election? So what um, what Loran was going on um, with regards to Trump's rhetoric in the, in that in that time period? Yeah, so let, I can try to fill in the timeline, and please uh, chime in if uh, I miss anything, just because it's been there's been so much going on, it's almost hard. It's hard to. I feel like all this has been years ago at this point, um, just based on the sheer number of events. But yeah, I mean, you go back to the primary and uh, China was one of the issues where Trump, you know, quote unquote, told it like it is. Um, he he uh, said, did he, he said something to the extent, you know, that China's raping the American economy and that things like uh, the WTO and these free trade agreements were a big mistake and that, you know, China has basically been stealing, you know, our te- our technology, our jobs, you know, what have you. Um, so, I, I mean, I think coming and this this seems to be for Trump. If we're going to do some some character analysis here, it seems to be for Trump. This has been long standing. He really looks at trade in this um, sort of winners and losers, zero sum type way. And going back to the '80s when you know Japan was on the rise, we've seen Trump basically say that you know we're letting the Japanese you know take advantage of us. So. Um, this seems to be like one of his his uh, deeply held uh, convictions that our tr- our co- trade and economic cooperation with China is a mistake. Um, so, I mean, you fast forward to where we are today, and I think a number of things have happened which um, are not just connected to Trump. I think it's also the people that Trump has hired um, in the sort of China Asia department in the National Security Council or in Council in his uh, and the U.S. Trade Representative Office, they've picked up a lot of um, people with strong held beliefs about how we need to change the relationship towards China. Um, uh, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, has long felt that um, that we've we are letting China take advantage of us. That Chinese treatment of U.S. companies is is uh, completely unfair, and that the U.S. government should do more to balance the relationship. And in addition, this has been overwhelmingly a a topic which i think china experts have said we need to do something about if you look back to last january where when asia society in new york put out this high level report on the u.s china relationship where they included basically every major china expert from susan shirk to elizabeth economy to orville shell um you know and they basically were listing out what they thought the priority should be for the next president um creating reciprocity in the economic and trade relations with china was high on the list it was you know the the general feeling was that we've sort of let china do its own thing without um opening up its own its market to our companies and you know that the chinese as they've become you know more wealthy and have started investing abroad that there has very much been this asymmetrical relationship forming where the Chinese can invest in all of the sect- all possible sectors in the United States and U.S. companies are really uh, restrained and constrained to what they could do in, uh, in China. So there was really this narrative in the U.S. which, which was running from, um, you know, even, even post-Tiananmen, basically the idea being that, you know, if we help China open up economically um, and, and, and allow them to, you know, in, engage with the global market, 
um, eventually uh, this this development will spill over into better behavior on the world stage and um, you know slow but sure democratization uh, which clearly in the era of um, the endless reign of, of Xi Jinping uh, is 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 not the case so I think there was a reckoning not necessarily I mean it's important to understand that this uh, this reckoning as uh, Loran was describing you know these folks Susan Shirk um, Elizabeth economy and others are not you know right-wing um, uh, fire breathers. These are these are kind of like the middle of the road, center left type um, folks who would have been in um, or would have been necessarily or would have certainly been advising a, uh, a Hillary Clinton administration. So the idea that um, uh, it was it was high time for the U.S. to figure out how to put more pressure on China from a uh, from an economic uh, openness standpoint is not necessarily a um, uh, an out of the mainstream run, but the um, uh, the, the method in which Trump has been doing that over the past few weeks certainly is not the way that um, um, many other presidents would have would have gone about it. So if you want to bring us up to speed, Lorand, over what um, what has transpired over the past uh, month or so with these um, uh, very quickly escalating uh, tariff tariff threats. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think you set up the scene very nicely that, you know, there is a growing concern that we need to do something. And now Trump as this, the man of the hour has, has formulated his plan. He's, he's basically has taken the first steps to putting um, the United States on a, on a collision course with China over trade. And it didn't really get off to the right start or, you know, at least the way that most experts would have liked this to have gone down, which is uh, Trump's steel tariffs. And basically before wage starting this, uh, you know, prolonged trade contestation with China, Trump just went ahead and, um, issued a a indiscriminate tariff on uh, foreign steel. And that didn't just impact China or probably impact China. Um, it's going to impact China relatively less than our allies like Canada, Germany, um, other EU countries. So that was, you know, immediately sort of um, uh, muddying the waters, um, so to speak. And, you know, where, so what Trump did is he signed this um, this tariff and immediately there was uproar from allies and um, from neighbors. And then over the following weeks, um, he signed a bunch of waivers, basically like giving the EU and um, um, Canada. And I, I, be- I can't remember if Japan also got a waiver, but basically giving these um, these um, countries some assurance that they're not going to get targeted. But at the same time, you know, the Trump basically started this trade war by, um, you know, hitting all of uh, the countries that are not China. And then proceeded to hit China. And that was what happened a few weeks ago, ago when um, basic, when uh, Trump came out and announced $50 billion in tariffs um, against Chinese high-tech goods. Now, I think there's an important distinction here because at most, I think everyone was, I think, generally right to say that the steel tariffs were a bad idea. Steel is not an important industry. Um, U.S. is a steel-consuming nation. We don't really, we don't have the production capacity to... Uh, meet uh domestic demand um basically you know the the people that will be absorbing the cost of the tariffs are not foreign countries but u.s workers and companies so you know it was overall a bad idea whereas this the the 50 billion dollar in trade tariffs were if you look at the details they were quite carefully thought out and i think that's probably we owe that to um to robert lightsheiser and um the u.s trade the u.s trade representative to the united states um so, so in U.S. So I don't have to say that out. Um, U.S. Trade Representative to the uh, U.S. is um, is uh, USTR. So if we could just say USTR, that'd be great. Um, so you know, fast forward to where we are right now, and basically, um, Trump announced um, these fifty billion in tariffs. The USTR came out with um, a list of high tech sectors which they were targeting. Um, and when you think about the you know the the sheer scale of U.S. China trade, 50 billion is not a lot, but it was targeting strategic industries that China wanted to develop um, and was subsidizing heavily to develop. Um, And interestingly, whereas we didn't really see much of a response with the steel tariffs, the Chinese really almost immediately responded. They they responded with, uh, you know, in kind with tariffs of their own. Um, And, you know, in some ways they were, they seemed to be ready for a fight. They were not, they were going to hold the hill, so to speak. They, um, they were, they didn't, um, 
they weren't they were they weren't going to give in or let this sort of uh, this action go unresponded to. And what Trump did the next day is he just he upped the ante and he announced 100 billion in tariffs. Now this this announcement didn't come with a, a particular detailed list of which sectors will be targeted, um, but in some ways it was a it was a pretty is a pretty bold move because the U.S. ultimately buys a lot more from China than China buys a lot from the from the U.S. If if um, China wanted to slap on another hundred billion in tariffs, they would uh, they would run out of exports to target because the U.S. just doesn't export that much to China. So um, that's sort of where we are right at the moment. And I think um, the these tariffs don't go into effect for another. A month or two. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of jockeying and a lot of signaling. And there's going to be, um, you know, the goal is hopefully to come to some type of resolution. So we don't have an actual trade war. But, you know, with Trump and anything is possible. So as someone who um, drinks whiskey and eats almonds here in Beijing, um, two of which uh, are potentially <laughs> facing 25% tariffs, I am particularly rooting for um, uh, Xi and Trump to find some sort of solution. <laughs> so one of the um, one of the big sticking points which Robert Lighthizer uh, focused on in his 200-page uh, report, which was kind of the, um, uh, the broader indictment of uh, Chinese industrial policy over the past um, number of years, was this um, was this Xi driven policy made in China twenty five, uh, twenty twenty five? So could you talk a little bit about made in China twenty twenty five and what about it so incenses Washington policymakers? Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting um, part of this unfolding drama and one that personally I did not expect. Um, so I one of the things I actually I was lucky enough to focus on when I was at the FT was um, was made in China 2025, which just was I think it, it was issued less than a year ago. At that point, no one was paying attention to it. There was barely it was barely registered in in the United States that there was this plan. And um, but when you looked at the specifics of the plan, it was it was uh, it was very clear this was going to be very significant. That the Chinese government was interested in making this leap to sort of high tech sectors, um, basically industries that have high value added that are, you know, basically at the moment dominated by countries like the United States, like South Korea, like Japan, like Germany, things like automation, robotics, um, semiconductors, aviation, aerospace, um, all these these industries which generate a lot of um, value and they usually take, they sort of are very difficult sectors to get into. Um, and because, you know, of China's economic transition as it tries to move away from um, from low-value-added sectors and labor-intensive sectors, you know, like textiles and sort of the things that we all associate with uh, Chinese-made goods, which are, you know, sort of cheap products, things that are made on the, on the, the cheap and sort of have a lot of labor input. You know, as the Chinese government tries to transition away from that, it makes sense that they would want to... Um, crack into some or break into some of these uh, high tech sectors. What what is surprising, or I think ultimately um, put off a lot of DC policymakers and policymakers in, in Germany and other advanced industrial countries is basically the scale and the mission of it. Because it wasn't simply that we want to incubate these industries so we can compete internationally in things like you know sort of new energy vehicles or something like that. Um, like it, it wasn't it wasn't that they wanted to basically be part of the competition. Um, the docu- the plan very much laid out a plan to sort of to eliminate the competition and to basically take over these sectors. Um, and this is, I think, a really important point for and the reason why um, policymakers are so uh, in DC are so upset about it is because it was basically a plan for China not to play fairly by the rules. It was a plan to. It is a plan to um, to subsidize high tech industries to basically do something that's called technology substitution, where um, there it will the plan will basically incentivize um, companies to buy thing buy domestically made products or pro- components. Um, so, as a sort of a background to this, um, most high tech products are incorporate a lot of components that are made everywhere in the world, and one of the major components of the global economy at the moment is this sort of high-tech supply chain that spans multiple com- countries. Like you will have in any sort of like, you know, um, sort of advanced, advanced computing, 
equipment, for instance, you will have components made everywhere from semiconductors in Korea to, you know, um, microchips made in Japan. And basically all these things are created in different places and usually can put into the same product or, or put into one product, if one finished product. Um, and basically what China um, said it wanted to do is they wanted to subsume this whole high-tech supply chain. They wanted everything to be made in China, um, which, you know, scared a lot of people and it justifiably so because a lot of in advanced industrial economies especially like south korea and germany really rely on this these sectors and being able to sort of um, contri contribute to this high-tech global supply chain which um, um is the foundation a lot of a lot of uh of a lot of um economic growth so um yeah, I mean, and that's really what, um, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why we need to take Trump's trade action seriously, or at least acknowledge that there's serious people behind it. Because when you looked at the USTR report, it wasn't the sort of uh, Navarro rhetoric about China, you know, raping the US or like, you know, China um, sort of, you know, taking American jobs and not playing fairly. It was very, uh, a very um, sort of authoritative um specific substantive report on basically what made in China was 2025 was doing. And it was, and it was connecting that to, to us companies and us job security. Um, so, I mean, that's where we are today. We have um, basically this confrontation over a Chinese policy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it makes sense. It makes sense that we're here. So, so one of the interesting things is that uh, it seems like this uh, is a real is going to be a real turning point for Made in China 25, uh, 2025 in that um, given the recent action uh, around ZTE and semiconductors where, uh, you know, almost all of uh, this is due to some unrelated sanctions incident, but probably not all that unrelated since it's coming out at the same time uh, as this big trade issue is that, um, you know, this this kind of autarkic vision of uh, technology creation may be coming a little faster than um, than Beijing might have hoped. Uh, so so on the one hand, you know, this may accelerate the process, but it also might mean that these technologies companies are going to have to churku, have to, you know, eat the bitterness for a little while um, while they try to reconstitute these supply chains and build more at home. Um, you know, I imagine that the government may uh, is going to be sympathetic to these um uh, to these uh, difficulties that uh, the companies are going to face in, uh, if, if and when this trade war gets going. But um, uh, it imagines that uh, 2025 might be accelerated a little bit, uh, not necessarily um, uh, due to, uh, you know, uh, Mofcom's plans or anything, but just uh, as, 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 the, um, as the West kind of forces, um, you know, stops, stops, stops trusting China um, on these issues of industrial and technological policy and, and forces them um, even more into their own world of uh, own world of production. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I actually think like I think the ZTE case is actually worth um, going into just a little bit um, because it's, it's really fascinating. Um, so it's completely unrelated or at least originally was unrelated to Made in China in 2025. And it was basically, you know, ZTE, one of these large telecommunications companies, telecommunication equipment companies, um, sort of like Huawei was getting into trouble with the U.S. government because they were exporting goods to North Korea and Iran. And why is that a problem? Well, because the United States is sanctioning both those countries. And the products that ZTE is making uses a lot of U.S. components. It uses um, it uses U.S. microprocessors. It, you know, it uses it has a number of suppliers in the U.S. which basically allow them to make their products. And this is a really common um, theme we see in Chinese tech, which is you know, despite this talk of um, of self sufficiency or you know, basically, you know, subsuming all of the high tech developments, you know, Chinese companies are incredibly reliant on a lot of U.S. technology. And what ultimately happened, you know. Um, and we can skip some of the drama to what the decision, the recent decision was that the Department of Commerce slapped a ban on ZTE from buying anything from a US, any technology product from a U.S. company. So that that covers everything from the processors that go into ZTE products to things like the Google Play Store. Um, and suddenly ZTE is is, I mean, basically the U.S. government just eviscerated ZTE. It um the company could very well go bankrupt unless some type of settlement is reached. Now, there are potentials for 
ZT to replace a lot of its components with Chinese-made components. Um, and, you know, I think it will be interesting to see if they can adapt and whether the Chinese government will help them adapt. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, it's really, especially if you look at Chinese media, it's, it's really, um, I think if, you know, it's easy to say a lot of these things going on right now are the sort of crossing the Rubicon point, so to speak, like the point of no return. But, you know, the ZTE case um, is really a, a, a crossing the Rubicon, so to speak. The Chinese feel very much vulnerable to, um, to uh, because of their reliance on foreign technology. Um, and yeah, we're going to have to see, we're going to have to see where this goes. There's probably going to be renewed talk of uh, sort of developing indigenous technology in China when it comes to semiconductors and things like that. And um, as sort of a back part of a bit of background in 2014, the Chinese government um, yeah, approved a, a major plan to basically create to fast to uh, jumpstart development of China's semiconductor um, industry. And, you know, they invest a lot of money into it. And in, I guess, almost eight years later, or excuse me, four years later, we, um, we aren't seeing huge um, strides forward. So um, it's been very much a tough challenge for, for China. So we're going to, we might see them, you know, double down on it to, to pour more money into it. So um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a very, it's going to be interesting to see how things play out. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of um, the scope of the uh, technology transfer and this foreign um, investment a as a strategy to basically steal technology from from the U.S. Um, or or American companies, like how what is the scope of these activities? And it's kind of hard to to grapple with the idea of you know, for example, China trying to learn to make something that Texas Instrument makes. Um, and TI doesn't need, you know, foreign investment, basically. TI has lots of money. And um, in that case, like, what, what can pretty much Chinese companies or the SOEs do to, to accomplish this plan? Yeah, and I think this is a... This is a really interesting question. And unfortunately, I think, you know, five months ago, we were talking a lot about Chinese investment and whether they were acquiring sensitive technologies. Um, and because everything has just been going at such a fast pace, I think we've never really reached a, a consensus answer to that. You know, there is a sense that China is acquiring valuable technologies abroad. And there's good examples of, um, of uh, you know, Chinese companies sort of gobbling up foreign uh foreign companies and you know and you know subsuming their technology i mean this is a this is a stated strategy of the chinese government and if you look at um recent guiding opinions from uh the ministry of information industry and information technology or the cac um you see like there is very much like we're promoting companies to go abroad and acquire or you know um acquire um advanced foreign technology so um there is very much a strategy. I think it's another question. Um, I mean, I think it's another question whether we should always, whether like if they're always acquiring technology that they otherwise wouldn't acquire. Um, so I think especially in like things like AI, well, the Chinese are quite advanced at AI. So if we're stopping Chinese companies from investing in the US, are we actually gaining much? Um, but, you know, and I think a lot of the places where that I think a lot of the things that the Chinese really want to acquire are things like semiconductor companies. It's stuff like Texas Instruments, um, and those actually those targets are oftentimes already quite hard or almost out of reach. You know, um, we there the Chinese can't easily acquire a U.S. semiconductor company, especially in this this climate, and especially because that goes before CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment of the United States, which is a panel of uh, a government panel that approves or rejects um, inv foreign investments or acquisitions of uh, sensitive U.S. Com companies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think the Chinese are going to have trouble um, sort of carrying out that strategy, especially since they've sort of been caught, so to speak. You know, a few years ago, we weren't really thinking about we weren't thinking that much about the effects of Chinese investments in these sectors. Um, but I think a critical component and a critical component to everything that we're seeing right now 
is going to be how does uh, the EU and other large trade partners, um, how do they, where do they um, line up, you know, because of the way that Trump started this whole trade um, war by targeting steel and basically um, punching all of our allies um, in the face before going after China, where, you know, the Chinese see an opening to basically go to the EU or go to Germany or go to Japan and be like, listen, we know, we know we have a lot of problems, you know, we haven't had the best relationship, but here, like, we're going to give you these great deals, this great, uh, these great, um, this great access to the Chinese market will give you a preferential, you know, treatment. And, you know, we can let bygones be bygones and we'll just gang up against the United States. Um, I think that's really what the Chinese are banking on, that there's, that they're going to be able to divide the coalition of countries that would otherwise, you know, uh, line up and demand that the Chinese change how they're practicing industrial industrial development. Um, so we're we're gonna. I think it's a it's an open question, and I think I think at the moment everything is just a little too heated. Um, and I think I think also to really like see how I think it's a little too heated to see how um, what's gonna happen. But um, I think another component, and so you know, another component is that um, a lot of uh, the companies that Chinese are trying to acquire are not. They're not companies that are doing particularly well. They're companies that um, have liquidity problems, that are you know suffering downturns, that are, decli- are declaring bankruptcy. Um, you know, major major exact example is uh, I, I believe it's pronounced Axitron, which is um, a German company, and basically the Chinese company that tried to acquire Axitron was um, blocked both by Germany and the United States because Axitron does sensitive work with the U.S. government. Um, is um, basically like that, that company was already sort of in a major hole. And since that, the, 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 oh, the acquisition bid was, uh, was rejected, the, um, the, the Chinese competitors have sort of filled that company's uh, role. And there's like, I think two large state owned companies, which are basically doing exactly what Axtron was doing, which is, was this sort of complicated process related to creating semiconductor chips um, um, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I think a lot of these, the, there's a really, it's, it's, it's really quite complex and we're, um, the real implications of Chinese investments are going to be hard to actually, um, sort of gauge for a while. So Loran, I'm going to close with a moral philosophy question for you. So, right? um, as a patriotic American, uh, considering working for one of these, uh, Chinese tech <laughs> firms, like where would you draw the line? Oh man, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I would love to get your your two cents on this too. Um, you know, I I think I think there's I think there's I think a lot of the reaction to Chinese tech right now is um is quite um for lack of a better term is a little bit jingoistic. That we're we're seeing it's a an us versus them type competition, and I think the reality is that you know there's a large Chinese. Um, uh, tech companies like you know JD or like uh, Baidu or like Alibaba and these companies are you know they're international. They have they're listed on the Nasdaq. They're they have um, you know they they have CSRs. Um, you know they're, they're, these companies aren't interested in primarily being the foot soldiers of like Xi Jinping's quest to become a cyber superpower. You know and I think I think I would. I would encourage people to work for companies like that. I think it's good for, I don't want those companies to become like, you know, sort of forced into taking a side in these, these, uh, the, the, this sort of, um, brewing science and tech war between the U S and China. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of companies which are, you know, they're not interested in being the, they're interested in, in stakeholder returns, which is, you know, a natural thing for a big company to be interested in. Um, but I, I think we're going to start seeing more and more companies like Chinese sort of unicorns that are going to be basically fulfilling the specific mission of uh, the Chinese government, partly because of the the ongoing trade tensions. And I would, you know, I think people are going to have to think twice whether they want to uh, work for companies that are very much serving like the state's interest in, um, in the world. So, yeah, I mean, uh, do you have an opinion on that, Jordan? I think uh, I'm 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 pretty much in agreement with you. Uh, one of the tricky things uh, is particularly with content companies. 
um, because that you get a lot closer to the censorship, a lot closer to the, um, you know, these sorts of issues that we were talking about earlier with them, uh, with ByteDance. And, and I think the like level of complicity uh, one may feel kind of goes up when you, um, you know, when, when, when your app is something that you can't discuss sensitive topics on or, or, yeah. or whatnot. Um, but I, but I, but I do think it's like a net positive for the world. Um, to have more people doing, uh, you know, instead of three companies trying to make self-driving cars, there are now seven because all the big Chinese um, companies are working on this issue alongside Uber and um, uh, and Amazon and 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 Google um, and 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 just having you know more high tech stuff, more uh, more companies is is like a net plus for global development. So I think uh, I yeah. think on the whole, you know, it's a good thing for the world that these companies exist, not a bad thing. Um, and and there are definitely you know a lot of uh, a lot of tensions and a, and a lot of you know big questions for American policymakers when it comes to stuff like Made in China 2025 and uh, you know potential censorship issues that uh, would come with these content companies going abroad. But um, yeah. you know, on the whole, I think it is. Um, uh, I think it's not something that uh, the U.S. per se should be uh, scared of. The fact that China does have unicorns that are doing really interesting, uh, really interesting things, and and are creating innovations that I think can benefit um, not just Chinese, but and not just people in the rest of the world, but even Americans as well. Um, yep. So uh, you know, I, I hope that this um, this this trade war um, doesn't really kick off and doesn't necessarily and and, and doesn't end up. Uh, leading to an, an even uh, bigger kind of segregation and, you know, digital segregation, which is something that, um, you know, the Chinese government is, is, is certainly complicit in um, basically mm-hmm. um, giving, uh, uh, giving, uh, giving, uh, you know, Google, um, giving Google the boot and, and making it uh, very difficult for, uh, for Amazon to get going here. But um, on the whole, I think it just would be better for the world if uh, we don't have this sort of, you uh, um, um, you know, like spheres of tech influence that the uh, that the world is um, uh, chopped up to, and instead have all these companies uh, being able to compete in all different um, uh, in all different markets. So, uh, you know, we'll see if Trump is uh, is successful in, in prying open any industries. We'll see, um, you know, to what extent uh, the 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 U.S. shuts off this sort of uh, these sort of uh, cross border investments. But, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear. Um, and there's a pretty strong consensus that, uh, you know, an, an unending trade war doesn't really, um, uh, benefit, benefit anyone. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be following this clo- this story closely on China econ talk. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's serious stuff. And, 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 and aside from the light tone that where, um, uh, we've been, we've been talking about this, uh, we've been using to talk about this issue. There are, there are, you know, there are very, very big stakes, um, going forward, and and these economic uh, tensions can certainly spill over to more um uh, more serious security ones. So here's to hoping that that doesn't um that doesn't end up um end up being the case. And uh, with that, I think we'll uh, I think we'll call it an episode. Uh, so Loran, thanks so much for taking the time. Athena, you did a great job co-hosting. Maybe we'll have you on at some point. Maybe. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, and um, uh, looking forward to having you back on the back on the show soon, Loran. Great. Thanks. Yeah, that was incredibly well said. Happy to be on.
快的跳舞，不小心就把人生调成女。女士被讨论过的人开始原样照搬，想要找寻靠山，全部都怕落单，也跟着玩起套路。但是就算你有了靠山，也没法靠关，人际关系还得靠攀。明星靠玻尿酸，没人怕暴露，所以套路离我远一点，我比较危险。你的把戏会被拆穿，最多再给你个鬼脸。跟你相比，我是烂演员，除了想要赚点钱。坦白说，我还想把腰杆停止在痛痛快快的玩几年。还记得那时候一无所有，常常靠借钱来养生活。睡梦里问上帝还有多久，我才能够摆脱这样的生活？一直在思考要怎么行动，干脆让行动来帮我思考。先赚点零用，让自己吃饱。我发誓要让家人为我自豪，他们看不看得惯，小爷都懒得管，背后的 boss 都随你便。地球还得赚太多，是等着半球会看到更屌的天。所以别再胡说八道，在现实里没有人会为你拼。等我把我想要的都拿到，发个写首励志的歌给你听。别乱套路，你不过就是挖个陷阱，小心的跳舞，我把我人生调成电影。别再乱套路，你把你自己玩进陷阱，愉快的跳舞，不小心就把人生调成电影。都在玩套路，你不过就是挖个陷阱，小心的跳舞，我把我人生调成电影。别再玩套路，你把你自己玩进陷阱，愉快的跳舞，不小心就把人生调成电影。They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app, or visit instacart.com to get ten dollars off your first order using the code Ingredients Ten. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order thirty-five dollars. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.